On this episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we're celebrating Christmas early with the controversial 1984 slasher Silent Night, Deadly Night. Joining us for discussion will be Justin Beam of the Justin Beam Radio Hour podcast. Welcome to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, a bi-weekly movie podcast that features hosts Brandon and Cullen discussing a film from cinema's past, considered but not limited to being a cult classic. As a disclaimer, each episode will include plot spoilers and may contain harsh language. Episodes available on cultcinemacavalcade.com and iTunes. Like the show on Facebook and follow on Twitter at CC Cavalcade. For questions, suggestions, and all inquiries, contact us via mail at cultcinemacavalcade.com. This is Cult Cinema Cavalcade. This is episode 32. This is Brandon, and as always with me is your naughty co-hoster, Cullen. Thanks uh, for joining us as we hack through this movie. Wow, wow. We're back here with Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984. Cullen, give him a little bit of what's in Santa's gift bag. After his parents are murdered, a tormented teenager goes on a murderous rampage dressed as Santa due to his stay at an orphanage where he was abused by the mother superior. Silent Night, Deadly Night is directed by Charles E. Sellier, written by Michael Hickey from a story by Paul Cammy, and stars Robert Brian Wilson, Gilmer McCormick, Lillian Chauvin, Britt Leach, and Linnea Quigley. Uh, welcome back to Cults in the Cavalcade, as we say at the top. Our episodes drop bi-weekly. We got a treat for you, though, at the end, um, because, uh, well, just stay at the end and we'll, we'll tell you. Cullen, uh, we got any mail, tweets, or Facebook messages or anything? Uh, we did. We got uh, an email. If you want to email us, it is mail at Cults in the Cavalcade. It's pretty easy. Uh, this is from Brian. He writes, I don't think the people who made this movie know how ghosts work. This is my favorite thing any of your guests have ever said. <laughs> that was in our our last episode okay. where we talked about Death Spa, where um, I can't remember if it was Tab or Kate from the girls in the back row said, I don't think the people who made this movie know how ghosts work. And we, we, we did get a, uh, we got a lot of good feedback on them. Emails, comments, stuff like that uh, from the girls in the back row. We're glad you liked them. And I hope you very much uh, like our guest today, and I guess he's got a lot to live up to to make a, a comment up to the know-how ghost work. From the Justin Beam Radio Hour, we have Justin Beam. Hey guys, thank you for having me on. Hey, th- thank you for coming, Justin. You're, you're quite the get for us. But uh, you want to uh, tell us a little bit about the Justin Beam <clears throat> Radio Hour? Yeah, sure. Well, first, to address Death Spa. I love Death Spa. What a ah. weird, awesome movie that is. And I had seen it 
that, that was the first kind of outside of Toxic Avenger. That was the first time I had seen anything that put that kind of gruesome sort of horde attack on a, a room full of people in a spa like that. Like, and then I, over the years was trying to track it down and I ended up with killer workout, which is weak. And I ended up with, <laughs> oh, there was some other one too. And anyway, finally death spa. And then it gets the, this great Blu-ray release. Like how, how does that happen? There's so many films out there and I love it. I'm glad it's there. There's so much behind the scenes stuff on there, but, and looks and sounds fantastic, but yeah, we I don't have uh, as Brendan points out with every wacky Blu-ray, we still don't have True Lies on Blu-ray, but we have Death Spa on yes. Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, the list is so long of movies that belong. I mean, it took how long, th this long, for Salem's Lot to even end up on Blu-ray. There's so many. Yeah, Scorsese has a film called Bringing Out the Dead that I love. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that mm -hmm. too, yeah. That's not on Blu-ray. Yeah. That got one DVD release. It's never even had a second, like, visit with bonus expanded material or anything. I mean, this, out of... Even he doesn't get the the full love. So, oh man, you could make four episodes out of films that merit the deluxe treatment, but have been sadly neglected. But that's awesome. You guys did Death Spa. That's so great. So great. Oh, the show. So <laughs> thank you for bringing, th thank you. For, I was like, what are we talking about? So thank you for bringing that up. The, the podcast is relatively new. I just finished what I'm kind of calling season one. I'm doing five run five episode runs and sort of seasoning them and they're over the course of the show they may be themed so uh, there's, there's there'll be a lot of fun stuff done with it but i had been on some really fun shows over the years and always loved the format finally after i was in um my life got kind of turned upside down in january when i was in a road bag car wreck and just was sort of forced against my will to sort of haunt the hallways of my house all jacked up on all these painkillers and going through all this, this spinal therapy and stuff, all these appointments and procedures and stuff. And during that time, I was like, what do I do with this time? And that's when I decided to, I'm like, well, my original idea was to pull my archived interviews because I've recorded basically every interview I've ever done for all the different magazines and stuff and Blu-rays and whatnot. And so I thought, what if I just do a from the archives kind of thing, do an intro to each one, it'd be pretty easy, and just throw these uncut interviews out there. And then I started going back through them, and I'm like, oh, it was overwhelming. So I didn't, you don't realize the things you do until you actually sort of zoom out and look at them. And then I'm like, this is way too much to start sifting through yet. So I thought, screw it. I want to do it. Let's just do new, new material and just started tapping the shoulders of some friends of mine to be guests and... The first five were so much fun, and it just gets more and more fun as we went. And I think that first run ended with a, a wonderful episode of Amy Steele from Friday Part 2 and April Fool's Day and a lot of other great stuff. So now it's on to Season 2, which is premiering on the 30th, and the first two episodes are almost done. And I got a lot of really fun names lined up. So it's a diverse show that's hopefully going to continue to find audience. I really love it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's good. To, and I have to say, I'm not <laughs> trying to try to flip it to tell our listeners, like, you, I, with your interviews and stuff, and you, speaking of Despot and loading things with bonus material, you've you produced bonus material for some high-profile high releases, but I've noticed with, mm -hmm. like, your, your commentary tracks that you've done and your interviews, I mean, you really bring something different to the table. You kind of bring both, like, 
the fan aspect, but you meet it with some some other more interesting angles, and you get like a there's a different vibe from people I've seen interviewed multiple times and different like topics to discuss while still hitting on important points that I really like that comes out of when you pull an interview with somebody. It's so I'm, oh, that's so honored. Yeah, like, wow, thank I, you so much. Like I noticed, I think you did the Prince of Darkness uh, Blu-ray, right? I did. There's just a difference in John Carpenter talking there than I had seen like in a lot of interviews with him. That just was like something unique and, and, and different. I think I, I I did a review on that. I'm like, could we have Justin do all the John Carpenter Blu-rays from now on? Because oh, that's so sweet. Beside him, <laughs> I did. I'd never seen from John Carpenter, but yeah. It's... Well, I that that really means so much. Thank you. I. I... I think it's a combination of pet peeves and luck, like a lot of things. In terms of the thing with Carpenter, he and I have been doing stuff, so we had rapport. I think the hardest thing for a lot of people with him is that he's he can be really intimidating when you first meet him. And I think a lot of people, especially if they're interviewing him, he also likes to make like poke fun and be goofy, but he does it. He he has that kind of dark sense of humor that can easily be misinterpreted as cruel. And and he's 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 playful, but it can scare people away. So I always feel bad. There's this one really long, and I think it's this British journalist. It's on YouTube, I believe. This guy does maybe like a 45-minute interview with John about his career, and it is the most awkward thing I've ever seen. I felt so bad for the guy because <laughs> it was clear the guy was just like like a, a mouse in front of a lion. But the truth is, if you're just down to earth and you're honest and you roll with the punches and you can throw them back a little bit, that's sort of the, the secret to the sauce with any interview is just being a person first and not jumping on top of topics and more so let them talk and that's the that's the biggest key. I mean no I mean no offense to to there are so many great people who are writers and interviewers and all that but very very few as cases aside and the truth is the audience isn't there for you. The audience isn't there for like your theories on what happened on screen. The audience is there for the person who's in the hot seat. And when you have the opportunity to be across the room from like a Stacey Keach or Robert Carradine or whoever, John Carpenter, you let them talk. You let Alice Cooper tell his stories. There's no interrupting. You sit and you listen and then you light a spark and you just let him fan it. That's what I love the most about it. And also, when you have that kind of conversation, that kind of interaction, the side roads that you're going to go down are going to be probably the most interesting element of the discussion because how many times has john been asked about the fucking mask in halloween yeah. <laughs> you know but let's talk about his relationship with dan o'bannon and let's talk let's dig into what it was like when he was an outcast kid who couldn't get a girlfriend like let's start there and you know because he's there everyone's life is fascinating and but so few people have a chance to talk about it and what's amazing is that the few that do get the spotlight a lot are asked the same rote questions time and time again so if you have the chance dig in go for it like find the new find the different and just let the person talk let them do their thing well they're gonna, gonna so. enjoy a lot more too if they get to talk about stuff they don't usually get to talk yeah. about yeah totally you know because there's all kinds of stuff like so halloween what was that like like yeah, that's not that's uh, a nothing yeah. of a question. I've done a couple interviews, and every time, every time, if it's somebody significant or whatever, I, I look to like bonus materials that have been released on DVDs and and, sure. and then like YouTube videos to see like what have they already talked about. What I, I don't want yeah. to ask them. And I've also not done interviews because I've been like, well, I don't have anything that 
you know, I may want to know or that hasn't been asked a million times. And That's me and Stephen King. Stephen King is my all-time literary hero. I think I've read more of his words than anyone on the planet. And I just love the guy. I went and saw him speak in Nebraska a couple months ago and was just like it was I was like seeing the Beatles. And I'm like, I mean, if it would be Elvis to me, that's a better comparison, <laughs> like seeing like Elvis. And he walks in the room and I was seriously like my heart was racing before going. I was like, man, what do I wear? And I've never thought about that ever for anything at any point. So that's how big a fan I am of Stephen King. And I was considering on the drive home, I'm like, okay, what if I could get a chance, like an audience with him? What if I could interview him through on writing, through all the additional material he's added to his books, the scores of interviews, just hours of all these documentaries. It's, it's all out there. I have nothing new to add. And so I'm absolutely content never having a conversation with him. And if I met him, I would just sort of like shake his hand and buy him a coffee yeah. and talk about something else that's like uh like conventions and stuff like i'm weird with you know i, I live in los angeles for a while where you know you're you kind of have this like unsung rule of don't bother celebrities and then you go to conventions mm. supposed to bother but i'm like what do i go up and like i usually i'll just tell them thank you that's like, yeah you know, i'm a, more of a picture guy but i did like i was fascinated when uh the first time like mark Patton from elm street 2 showed up at one i'm like no Mm-hmm. Like I got, I talked to him for like a half hour because like this was back when he first popped up again, after being yeah. missing for you know, right. twenty five years and and you know he's a fascinating person to talk to. But a lot of them, I'm just like I don't know what to say. So, because mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, you know, everybody's coming up and telling them they're great and, and thank you and all that. So it's just yeah. Well, and it's also with the Blu-rays, for example, you have an opportunity. You are. A documentarian you are right now you're cataloging history 30 some episodes of this program and these are archives that you're that you're populating with with artifacts and you have an opportunity to present things you also have an opportunity to direct and paint things and that's another side of it that especially in documentary making of type materials and i, I know a number of people who have been featured in some of these behind the scenes things and felt like whoa they kind of painted me in a gross light that i didn't feel when it was being shot. So just being truthful and being honest and presenting things as they are. And if you find a little moment that shows someone in a different light, like I know everyone thinks that Carpenter is, a, is grumpy. He kind of has a reputation for being kind of a curmudgeon a little bit, which he'll, he'll fess up to. He's, he's like, I just want to be kind of left alone to play video games and watch basketball. But there's this moment when I was doing the Body Bags Blu-ray and I was shooting the interview segments for the documentary on it. And He's sitting there, and in the middle of it, we take a break in between questions, and they bring him in his coffee because he's constantly drinking coffee and smoking. And this, we're at this studio and sort of nestled in this neighborhood in Los Angeles. This place is great called Private Island Tracks. Shout out to Private Island. And they have a lot of great interns who work there, who are really passionate, these kids in school. And this kid walks up, bringing John Carpenter a cup of coffee, probably is like the most terrifying moment of his life. And he walks in and he walks up and, and Carpenter's like, he's like, is there cream in there? And he goes, yeah, but all we had was hazelnut, I think is what the kid said. All we had is hazelnut. And Carpenter just freezes and gives him this death stare and is like, what? And you could just, like, the air sucked out of the room. And then... 
Carpenter goes, I oh, know it's fine. I'm, he laughs and he kind of like, yeah, I bring it over here. Thanks. I appreciate you bringing it in. <laughs> like it was this totally hilarious moment where this kid shit his pants, like about two feet away from me. And every engine, all the engineers are just like, shit, like what is going on? And I, and so at, if you watch the, if you pick up the body bags, Blu-ray watch at the very end of the documentary at the end of the credits, cause I kept that moment in it at the, at, like as, as it's going, I have like, cause the arc with, the sort of the, the thread throughout the documentary is the making of the film. One of the things that I also talked to everybody who was a part of it about was working with John and about his legacy. You know, his wife, Sandy, who produced the film with him is on there. But that didn't all, it just didn't fit in the documentary. It would have made it overly long and meandering. So instead, I cut the best of moments about sort of working with John or life with John as the credits are rolling at the end. And at the very end, like the tag is that moment where he fucks with this intern. And that's just, that perfectly illustrates what John is like. And if you can get that, like if you can get to that point with him where he can do that in the room with you, then you're going to have a great conversation. That's just probably the best example out of everything that I've ever included. One of the best, maybe, that allows this person to be a human being and not just a volley of the same answers to the same questions over and over again about stuff that they hardly remember or have talked to about ad nauseum, you know. I assume uh, when you went to see Stephen King, you dressed as Jordy Farrell from Creepshow, right? I did, and I walked in with a gun in my mouth. <laughs> Good. They, Good. Were, they weren't impressed at all <laughs> at the venue. Weak. No, I, I, I think I, honestly, I think I wore a Big Trouble in Little China shirt. That was my big decision. Like, that's what I arrived at. So, if Steven comes over me, that's what I'll be wearing. I get, I, I'm, I just make bad decisions. <laughs> he was so great, though. He was fantastic. He was everything I wanted it to be. And, and then some. And then I got an autographed book, and I was just like a kid in a candy store. The whole, like, four hour drive home, I'm like touching it. Like, this is real. This is in my car. I was so excited. Oh, my God. Like the autograph you're touching. Right. The, the the book. I don't dare to touch the autograph. No. That's, oh, oh, okay, okay. Like just knowing that it was in there. It's like this is this is like how many millimeters away from my hand right now. No. It was it was really exciting. The that next, was thrilling. The next best thing would be given one of his pens before your senior trip on a cruise ship. Oh god. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Anything else you're working on, Justin, or you want to talk about before we move on to Silent Night, Deadly Night? I took a bit of a hiatus after the wreck actually shortly before then I, I decided to step back a little bit i was doing too much and it was really killing me and driving me into the ground and so i slowed down hit the brakes and then life forced me to and then after the fog cleared a little bit as i started making more progress with recovery i started to write again and so now and i decided well you know i've been writing for these other magazines for years i wanted to try to explore some new territory so now i'm in delirium magazine which is published by Charlie Band, who does full moon pictures. It's not a full moon magazine. Like It's not about full moon product. It really is just like a crazy, wonderful fringe cinema passion p- piece every month, or every bi-monthly. So you, you, I think full, if you just go to fullmoon.com, you can pick that up, or maybe even deliriummagazine.com. But I just started appearing in that. And also in Scream magazine out of the U.K., I think in maybe the December issue, I'm going to start appearing in that one. They have like three or four articles of mine in queue there too, which that magazine feels more like vintage Fango. That's like classic 80s Fango in a way. So I highly recommend it. And it's now going to be available at Barnes & Noble 
and a growing number of U.S. retailers, as well as by subscription and digital. So Scream, and also a few years ago, I wrote, I worked with Kiss on their tour magazine for an album they had called Monster, and I did a big piece on Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park for that. I just love that movie We've, so uh, much. People and have requested us to do that one on the show. Oh Jesus! If when you do it, call me. Okay. You do it. Great. I'll absolutely come All back right. on. For Expect sure. a call. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. When I was at Scream Factory, shop and Shop Factory doing stuff, uh, that was my number one goal was to get. Uh, the both because there's two versions of that film i don't want to spoil it all in this episode i guess but bottom line i was hunting like hell to try to find the rights and the original elements and i couldn't even with gene's help like he and i couldn't find a fucking thing so there's a european cut that's on the kissology volume 2 dvd set and that's as close to a complete version of the film as, as we have right now but anyway the reason i bring all this up is because fast forward till this year and the official kiss magazine is underway now and the first issue is a tour tie-in thing starting with issue two which we're in the early stages on right now it's going to be a monthly or bi-monthly sort of just celebration of kiss amazingly for a band that has everything from condoms to coffins these guys have never had a magazine they've had comic (laughs) books for decades but never a magazine that was a regular issue magazine so that's another thing that's kind of new that i'm working on so i got a few things and then i Contributed to a, a book on the Howling franchise. Oh, okay. I, I got hired for some chapters on that, and that's coming out soon. That's a two-volume monstrosity. Did you write about pun intended. I wrote about all the sequels. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I'm not particularly kind. And then, and, <laughs> and, well, and I, I also mean, just got I've picked seen up. them. I, I understand. It's <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh Jesus, the one what was it part seven. Like the, the 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 last one that was done, I think by Anchor Bay, which is New Moon, I believe. I really really liked that movie a lot, and I wish that that would have relaunched that franchise because it was so well done. The lichen action in it is is amazing, and the werewolves are, are some of the absolute best that have ever been put on screen. So that movie is great. The one that came right before it is the one that takes pl- it's shot like on video. And it's got a lot of line dancing and it's nothing but one-liners and cowboy jokes. It is the biggest, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of bad. I've seen 555 and things. I've seen a lot of bad. And this movie's the worst. So I did this howling thing. And then I also just got hired to contribute to this book on, they used to do those special episode. Like you would have like facts of life. And then like this, this Friday night the special episode of Facts of Life. And it was always some morality tale about Tootie learning to smoke weed or something and then everyone having to like rally around her to bring her back to reality. That might not Mm -hmm. have even been an episode of that, but But you know what I'm talking about. One of those shows had it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like like Small Wonder had her smoke once, I remember. Someone got addicted to pills and yeah. Oh yeah, like in Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell, Mm -hmm. the one where uh, Jesse gets all freaked out. Yeah, and Family Ties, um, I think... Alex was addicted to pills uh, for, to help study too. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I guess, a community out there who loves those things, along with TV movies in general. And so, I just got hired to do a couple chapters for a book on those two. I don't know. So whatever, random stuff. Well, I have a podcast, so <laughs> that makes me cool. Uh, podcast, uh, podcast is a lot of freaking work. I had no clue. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'll do it myself. <laughs> yeah. Famous last words. So you picked Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
Um, we originally picked yeah. uh, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, which we enjoyed. I've always been a big fan of that yes. one. But yeah, uh, now uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Prom Night 2 is great. Prom Night 2, it, it eclipses the original. Mm-hmm. It is the best in its franchise. And I think it's one of the, just the, of that entire decade, it is one of the best films, period. Because it embodies nearly all of the elements from every standalone or franchise film that came out during that era. It has all of the elements poured into one. And you would think that it would be something gone so and out of control, but it is so well done. The effects are fantastic. So many memorable set pieces in it. And I just love it, man. I think I, I wish it got more love than it does. And I'm I'm glad you guys can, still did the episode on that, even though I couldn't be on it. It's su- such a damn good movie. Well, I'm glad I finally had an excuse to watch it. That's when it's one of those things like, oh, I'll get to that someday. And then this, finally it was like, all right, now's the time. And I don't regret it. It was great. Today's film, Saturday Night, Deadly Night, you actually, you got this back in theaters, right? A couple years ago? Yeah, I was part of the team that did that. They, uh, uh, the first, my first toe in the water with that was back in 2012, 2012, I want to say, when I was working at Trancus Films, which is the parent company of the Halloween franchise. And I had the idea, we, we had, we had um, announced somebody, I think it was the Weinsteins, had announced uh, Halloween 3, like the sequel to Rob's second film, way prematurely. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it was, I mean, the second one made a lot, it did great. It, it the, the response to it was great. Financially, it was great. It was clear there was going to be more, but it's the same old story, which they continue to do to this very day of just announcing that there's going to be another film before anything's done. And so people were really hyped up for it. I'm like, well, we got to do something. Like This is like the third time that we've announced something and nothing's happened. So why don't we put the original back in theaters? And so I, it was like this sort of going to basic training for boutique theatrical booking i learned a lot about it i was already dealing with the video side of things internationally and and domestically for halloween uh, doing video distribution and, and, and stuff but then the theatrical side is completely different but anyway i learned a lot about that and we had a tremendously successful run in partnering with screen vision in theaters with halloween that year and that's the one that i did that documentary for that ran before it and all this other stuff that led to me partnering with screen vision on Halloween four and five the following year. And then the option for Silent Night, Deadly Night came up. And that was with Brainstorm Media. And it was going to be initially it was eventually ended up being a Fangoria tie in too, which is really more just for promo side of things, like a PR thing. But yeah, so we got that and I brought in every all, all the main players who made the film and had had some great media outlet days and a lot of a lot of fantastic press got a new transfer drawn on it which was great and it was a pretty amazing experience because i love this movie so much ever since i was a kid this is one of the this is like in this is the holiest of the holy and i still think the ultimate christmas horror film although i really like i of course i love black christmas christmas evil but um you got it released without protest well, kind of, kind oh, of. Oh, really? Yeah. W- what's interesting about this is that the original concept for the art was just to put the original art out because the truth was that most theaters, the few theaters that did stick with it when it first came out for that short run that it had, they wouldn't even put the, the poster in their lobbies because if you recall, it's Santa's arm with an axe going oh, down the yeah. chimney, mm-hmm. which even a child can see what this is something wrong. 
and it's taking this. <laughs> it's 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 kind of like <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> it's like putting a strap on on Jesus or something. And so, <laughs> and so we uh, the approach was well, let's use this original poster art, and this met with the exact same response. This is inappropriate. Oh wow! This, this can't this can't work. This won't work for us. So uh, and some of the early teaser materials for it did have it in it, and it caused the same shit again. And some of the same family groups started to like not same groups, but similar Christian groups started to sort of start to bubble up and it became like, okay, we see the writing in the wall here. So came up with a completely different concept for the art, which was a deer, like a mounted deer head with Christmas lights on its antlers. Still very cool. The lighting on that poster was pretty cool. Oh, I love it. I love it. Sadist art did that. And they did a fantastic job, and it just perfectly captures the film, the spirit of the season. It's like true to its source material. And then, of course, we use the original font and logo on it. And it just said the original Holiday Cult Classic returns December 4th. And the other concern was a buddy of mine had made a movie called Silent Night that came out around the same time. The remake? Stephen C. Cool. Stephen C. Miller. It's, it's kind of a remake, kind of a... Loose, loosely. Yeah. Not because it isn't really a remake, but it does include there's just a couple of moments like the grandpa moment is sort of aped the impaling. There's a couple of things that are pulled from the original, but it's definitely not a remake. But we didn't want there to be too much confusion, like maybe the people interpreting that being back in theaters or being put in theaters. So this went a bit of a different route and did that. And then but honestly, out of all the Silent Night stuff that I've done, as fun as it was to put it back in theaters and go see it, yada yada, was I ho- I co-hosted a film festival in Indiana that that year and it was the following year and it was me and Joe Bob Briggs co-hosting this festival. Was it the Art Craft? And yes, the Wait, the art craft? No, this was. You're talking about B movie celebration the first year. Or there was. I I know. I think Joe Bob's been at the art craft before, but he has. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there was the year that was like the B movie. It was the sort of like the B movie United Nations was the first year that I ever went to B movie celebration. That was at the art craft okay. in Franklin, uh, and that was probably the most fun I've ever had a film festival because Kevin Tenney was there. Did Night of the Demons. It was Jim Wynorski, who's done, geez, you name it, you know, Chopping Mall on to a lot of stuff. Fred Olin Ray was there, which was incredible. That's where I met Fred the first time. You had Steve Latshaw, who did Jacko, Dark Universe, and all this other stuff. Joe Bob Briggs. I mean, it was outrageous. And we were all just having a blast the entire time. That was so much damn fun. And this was the, so this was the B-Movie celebration two years after that. So the, the following year, it, they didn't do it at the art craft. There was some issue with contents. They couldn't do it there. And then this next year, it was in a town called Nashville. I think Nashville, Indiana. Okay. It's like mm-hmm. a little artist, yeah. artist kind of town. And they have a theater there that's in the round. Have you been into that one? No, I have not. Uh, I've only been in, in the really cabins in, and like in the candy shop in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. It's like uh, it's, you know, that, this little artist kind of visit for a day and buy some pottery kind of town and it's it, which is adorable but the coolest thing about it is this theater in the round and so as joe bob and i who joe bob had been there that for the first year but also this one we were actually like straight up hosting it together and then we did silent night deadly night and got a chance to present it together up there which was a real treat and the audience still reacted to it just like they you know first time i saw it it's it it holds up so well i think 
and it's so much fun and it's so unique and that's a really treasured memory with this movie so i have a little bit of a background with it i guess you could say next to um last temptation of christ from scorsese this is probably the next most controversial movie of that decade yeah. Too, and I mean, hmm. the the trick is like uh, the funny thing is that you know reading about the protests and stuff where they're like, oh, you know the people won, they got their they got the movie pulled from the theater, but not till mm-hmm. after it made triple its budget back. I think they were okay with pulling it <laughs> after you know it made triple the budget. I'm sure they would have liked it longer, but I, I noticed that the box office numbers for it is they made plenty of money off the two weeks. It was oh yeah. And it beat <laughs> Elm Street. Sure. It it opened. They opened oh. the same weekend and. It beat Nightmare on Elm Street. And who knows if Silent Night, Deadly Night stuck on. That was the one people wanted to see more, I guess. Who knows what would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's pretty phenomenal, especially considering the paltry number of theaters that it was actually in at that point, that it really managed managed to do really good business. And it was all driven by this negative press. If they wouldn't have had that, their budget was so meager. If it wouldn't have been for all these family groups coming out and shouting and busting out their, their picket signs... They would have had nothing. From people so, who hadn't seen the movie even and weren't planning Of course. And, and my thing is, I, I, I totally agree about the poster, but I'm like, why are you processing a movie that you wouldn't be taking your children to to begin with? Yeah. That was, yeah. That was all about for the kids. And, and then I think like Leonard Malton made the comment of like, what, what's next? The Easter Bunny is a child molester. And it's like, no, if you look at the, the slasher progression, it was always, you know, put him in a mask, knife teens or whatever and like yeah. getting to santa claus costume was a logical progression honestly I totally think. but it wasn't the first time it was done either no nope, it wasn't and and you're exactly right you know i just had the same conversation with my fiance maybe two days ago where we were talking about the rating system and the purpose of it and i get and i appreciate knowing this is an adult film this is a film that's okay for kids that's fine where my beef lies is when they're saying this is an adult film. We'll put it in theaters, but only if you cut here, here, and here, take three frames out of this, show only one tit instead of two, whatever it might be. Hmm. Like When you alter someone's art, can you imagine walking in any gallery owner stopping an artist to the front door? Like, Mr. Wood, Mr. Grant Wood, hold on. Let me uh, flip through your, your wares here, and let's see what we can do to tidy these things up a little bit. It is unbelievable that we still have a system in place that that straight up strong arms blackmails and demands artists transform their art yeah. for to, to to satisfy a an antiquated out of touch irrelevant group of conservative lunatics right. if you want to say this is too adult for a 10 year old to see that's cool then that 10 year old's parents can make the decision to take them or not or whatever but when you're saying too much for a 10-year-old and also for adults, we don't want to see this one shot, like, that's wrong. That's straight up wrong. And that has no place in, I think, contemporary America or most of the world. I mean, it blows me away. It's so frustrating. I agree. I guess let's get into this art that we're talking about with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Punishment is necessary, Pamela. It is good. The film opens on Christmas Eve of 1971, where we follow a family traveling to visit their grandpa with a mom, dad, little boy named Billy, and a baby named Ricky, who's being held in the front seat of the car with the mom. It was the 70s, I guess, right? Yeah. My seat. parents did that, and, yeah. Uh, uh, 
Well, this is back before physics existed, so there was no concern for the baby. <laughs> and police. I noticed they kept showing the same shot of the dad looking over and smirking. Did you yeah. guys pick up on that? It's kind of funny. <laughs> He's like, yeah, hey, guys. We're in Utah, and the, the grandpa's at the mental health facility, and they have him in a recreation room for them, and he's just blankly staring at a wheel in a wheelchair and unresponsive. But the parents then go to sign some papers and leave Billy with him, and it's like super creepy. The grandpa just suddenly grabs Billy and tells him, Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year. You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, boy. You better run for your life. And then the parents return. He's back to normal, just staring. What's super weird is the parents, they seem to believe that Grandpa is just catatonic. That's just how he is all the time. So he's just a liar. Is, is all he is. <laughs> yeah, it begs the question, like, what's the greater story here with Grandpa? It's like <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. And with Grandpas in general in, in horror films, let's talk about Grandpa and Troll 2. Yeah. Why, exactly why, why has he been banished to hell? Because that's what they say. Like several times it's referenced that this guy's in hell. What the hell? What has he done to end up in hell? And why is he forced to go back there? And why does he have to wear a turtleneck in hell? Like there's so many questions I have <laughs> he was a, he was about the glutton, grandpa and troll. A glutton for ham sandwiches. That was maybe. He w- just, was that? <laughs> oh my God. There's an ulterior mode. There's something going on. And, and, and that might be why the parents were so quick to like, it's already been two months. He should have forgotten about him by now. Like, they're so pissed off that the kid's still upset about his dead grandpa, who who is clearly close to. Oh, man. So same thing here with his grandpa. It's like, what is he doing? What is he pulling off here? Does he just want to get away from his family? Is, is he just <laughs> bored? Is he drunk? Should he That's even be wonder. there? Like, is living with his um, family so awful that he has to fake you know, being coherent, he has to fake dementia or whatever yeah. just to get away from them. And well enough to fool nurses and doctors <laughs> and have these people taking care of him on a day, which is not inexpensive. So he's willing to, I mean, it, it, once you start looking at it, it's hilarious the, <laughs> how huge this prank would have to be that he's pulling. What a weird element that I hadn't thought too much about. Do, do you think Mother Superior would force Ricky and Billy to go visit him? Maybe. She probably wouldn't want him out of the set. Yeah. I imagine she wouldn't want to spend the money on gas right. because aside from being a terrible human being, I bet she's cheap. It's never mentioned, but I'm sure she's cheap. Safe assumption. Totally legit. Meanwhile, that night at a uh, convenience store, there's a guy dressed as Santa that robs a place and shoots the clerk dead three times just for $31. Mm-hmm. Which the clerk does the old, like, spaghetti western cross in the eyes when he gets shot and falls down. <laughs> it's one of the worst one of the worst shooting deaths in all of cinema. It's like he should say, go, go, go. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Later down the road, the family winds up stopping for Santa, who's on the side of the road, and seeing if he needs any assistance. And immediately when he gets over the car, he pulls a gun and fires on the dad as he's trying to drive off. And then Billy gets out of the car just to run and hide, and you can hear the baby screaming. And then he pull, the Santa killer pulls Mom for the car, and he rips off her shirt and then slits her throat. And this is a scene we will not only revisit plenty in this movie but the next one and the next one 
and the next like this is the flashback oh, yeah. they love showing in this series maybe it, gets- it is essentially part two yeah i mean like part mm-hmm. two is 60 percent this scene well, part, part three uh has a, a flashback to this moment with her shirt getting ripped off and part four as well yeah it's, it's so ridiculous and this whole thing is underscored with a ch- like a children's church choir singing sweet yeah. baby like some christmas hymn about a child as <laughs> all of this is unfolding it is one of the yeah. bleakest moments in horror speaking of yeah it's like it's like it's not haunting enough to see a woman almost raped let's put yeah. a children's choir behind it too yeah speaking yeah of the children's choir this movie wrote its own christmas music i wondered about that because i hadn't can't even tell because yeah. there were like a bunch of songs like do i just not know christmas music i've never heard that before <laughs> Like it, okay, so I'm not insane, so that's good. I'm not out of. Are touch. we going to talk about "Warm Side of the Door," which oh, is arguably the, the greatest <laughs> montage yeah, theme we're, we're ever? We're going to get to that. The warm side of the door. Yeah, we won't okay. get to "Warm Side right. of the Door," but um, yeah, I just wanted to mention oh. that because it's one of the interesting things, and they're so confident with that music, you're just like, "Oh, I, I think I've heard this one before." You haven't. <laughs> Silent night, deadly night. The Santa Claus slits the mom's throat, comes looking for Billy, and all of a sudden it's December 1974 at St. Mary's Home for Orphan Children. Mm -hmm. And uh, Billy is now a troubled youth. He brings a drawing, he makes a drawing in his class that offends his class and his nun teacher. And it's a picture of Santa with knives in him and a reindeer with his head cut off. So he gets sent to Mother Superior's office who, if there's a villain to be had in this movie that isn't killing people, I'd say Mother Superior's a good candidate. She might be the the emperor to Billy's Darth Vader almost. (laughs) For sure. Hey, hey, you know who's the best people to uh, raise children? People that have no experience with children ever. Except when they're sad and damaged. That's the best people to raise children. (laughs) She sends him to his room, and we have Sister Margaret, who's like good nun to Superior's bad nun, and she tells Mother Superior that, you know, he's still got memories of the violence he witnessed, and Mother Superior just doesn't care, and Margaret's worried it's going to come out and get gets worse from every Christmas, but Margaret ends up going to Billy and talks him into going outside and playing with the other kids, but on his way out, he... Witnesses two people having sex through a keyhole in door, which gives him flashbacks it, to his mother's death, which it's a weird scene. <laughs> Is it ever explained who those two are? I think they're just kids that go to the school. Like They seem like, but, but it's an orphanage, so they seem a little old to be in an orphanage, don't they? I always, I, I always thought that it was like maybe like employees, like maybe okay. janitor and cook or something like that. I don't know, because they do look older. Yeah, well, that, mean, and that would be fine. I just wish they would have mentioned, like, oh, you did. Like, well, but then, like, because the nun, Mother Superior, she sees this, freaks out, and starts beating them with a belt. So, right, if, they're, right. so if they're employees, then th- that's grounds for a lawsuit, I would say, <laughs> being beaten by yeah, your Yeah, but boss. they're way too old to be in an orphanage. You're right, though. I mean, like, that's they're beyond. Well, my thing is, where was, like, when Billy gets later on put hired at the toy store... It, it feels like he's just coming from the orphanage, and he's about age appropriate to be the same age as these two people they find. So was he? That's true. It's yeah. was he just the lucky one that got to stay at the church or the orphanage with them? Or yeah, I don't know. But we yeah. never see a group of older kids aside from this. Every time they have a Christmas scene, it's all the little ones. Right. Well, I mean, I I would say that 
Well, I mean, they can't throw them out if they're underage. You know, they've they've got to have a place to live. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the uh, uh, logistics of 1974 child custody in Utah. I, I just don't. I just don't. After Mother Superior beats those kids, she goes outside after Billy and tells him, you know, what he saw was very naughty, and that when we do something naughty, we always get caught and get punished because punishment is absolute. And she then tells him he's naughty for leaving his room, which was Sister Margaret's fault. And she then gives him lashings with a belt. And, of course, he has <sighs> nightmares that night about his family's death. And when he awakes, he's leaving his room and caught by Mother Superior, who, you know, the best treatment is to tie him to his bed. Yeah. Mother Superior, I think, has deep, repressed sexuality. She's spanking. She's tying up. She takes someone with a belt. I mean, come on. Yeah. She is... Ugh. After he has that, you know, bedpost tied down sleep it's christmas day and he gets his present and mother superior tells margaret that she's gonna force billy to sit on santa's lap because she's just still awful Uh, (laughs) you you know how i you know how i know she's awful aside from all the other stuff that we've talked about like when when all the kids they're opening presents they're throwing stuff around laughing mother superior walks through the scene and says i see nothing but greed where there should be gratitude yeah. yeah. How how about joy, you husk of a human being? Yeah. <laughs> how she's awful is she? Rough. Like like that that was the moment like she's done a lot of stuff, but I, I, I wanted her fired into the sun when <laughs> when she's <laughs> See one thing this movie will not give us. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so she drags him, like just pull he's kicking and screaming, throws him on Santa's lap, but he gets off there and decks Santa in the face. And runs to his room, hides in a corner, sobbing and begging for forgiveness for being naughty. And then we hear Mother Superior call for William, and we get a freeze frame. Ooh. We don't know what happens between then and spring of 1984. Which, uh, Nothing good if he's living there. Ten years later, and we have uh, Sister Margaret acting, asking a Randy Quaid-looking fella. <laughs> who, uh, is the uh, toy store manager of Iris Toys looking for a job for Billy? And when we bring him in, he's now a muscular blonde boy. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, we get a musical montage of setting up Billy working at the store. The the Christmas on the warm side of the door. Is yep. that what you're talking about? Yep. Oh my song. God, it's so beautiful. Where the fire's bright and it's burning every night. I think my jaw was just <laughs> open the entire time, just listening to that song. Like this is, like this is awful and amazing all at the same time. Feels like you should be. Like, this is like you're watching like a coffee commercial or something from the, <laughs> back in the day. It's really, it's really epic. And one of the greatest things about that sequence too is if you were of age at that time, it's the purest portrait of an '80s toy store that has ever existed i mean it's so just it just captures every aisle and for people who were into everything from 
I mean, geez, oh, there's so many tie-in, tie, you know, products yeah. tying into shows and movies and Star that's Wars so, and all this other crap. That's what's so great that they use actual toys. Like you see Jabba, yeah. you know, yeah. on his dais or whatever, like like right. like several boxes just sitting there. Like it's amazing. I uh, I saw yeah. Crawl the board game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't <laughs> know that happened, but they made Crawl the board game. Proof. Yeah, you know, there's 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 plenty of stuff like that. Like there's like later in in the movie, like uh, we're in the Toy Store too. I saw like a like a Kermit the Frog in there. And it was a really really good Kermit the Frog. It's not like the crap that we have now. It looked like like that could have been on the set of the Muppet Show. It was so nice. Yeah, that's cool. That sequence is really just top notch. And you know, down to how good is Billy? Well, he drinks milk instead of booze. Yeah. Like yeah. you got that that creep who calls him a moon goon. What the fuck? What? <laughs> anyway, that's for another topic. Right. And, but that guy's like, hey, you want to pull from my bottle? And he's like, nope, got my little carton of milk, dude. Like, I'm good. Man, Billy, you are so pure. You are really a good guy. There's no way you're going to murder anybody in this film. No way. Well, he's afraid that, well, you know, he's afraid that Santa is going to punish him, you know, from the cryptic, cryptic thing that happened with his grandfather. Yeah. And he's right. lived a decade of hell from those awful nuns you gotta be good the whole year (laughs) it's true but yeah we we get introduced to some of his co-workers like pamela who he obviously has a crush on and i think his name's andy the skeezy guy but uh all of a sudden the 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 montage cause comes to an abrupt halt when a christmas banner gets rolled out and it's got santa on it yes he gets kind of angry looking at it (laughs) you see just the smile drop from his face on the warm yeah. side of the door. It's like, dun-dun. Billy, he gets in an argument with uh, Andy in the back. Uh, as he goes through the story, he sees Santa there and has flashback again, and, and he knocks him to the floor, and he, he goes to the warehouse to kind of catch himself, and then he daydreams of having sex with Pamela, and then Santa stabs him to end that little <laughs> fantasy. But then he's actually in his bed, I oh, yeah. think. Like in his, he wakes up in his bed, and then he goes in the corner like when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, because he's got like PTSD, honestly, yeah. <laughs> you know, from seeing his parents murdered and again being beaten for ten years of his life. It brings to mind also Christmas Evil, which is my other favorite Christmas movie. Both movies that sort of deal with emotional trauma in in a bigger way. Usually, in a lot of movies, I like pieces and some other stuff. Like you see two people getting it on and then just 10 years later you just lose your shit and start murdering everybody like sex turned me into a lunatic it's a, or, or some some smallish trigger like moment it, it, or 1980s kind of trope mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. very much so very much so but it's never dealt with and it's not I'm, I'm not just talking about sex but the way that these guys have been through some trauma and have, you know like the guy in Christmas Evil is just living this bleak life but in this one I mean this guy this kid's life was a mess from the start all of his memories are tainted by all this stuff well of course he's going to struggle and it's interesting that they choose to return to that so it doesn't just dive into gratuitous elements of horror it it returns to it sort of keeps you reminded of the fact that this is for a reason what's going to happen here is is for a reason and uh, that's it's one of the one of the more fascinating aspects i think about the undercurrent in this film it's really interesting because this is a uh, one of the maybe one of the first of the slashers that these commercial ones that the killer is actually our protagonist yeah 
Yeah, like you actually like know the background of the killer other than just like a 10-minute scene at the very beginning. And right. you know, and honestly, as I was watching, I was like, God, I feel really bad for Billy. Like this is mm-hmm. maybe the only murderer in you know, in these in other slasher movies, you're like, okay, something great didn't happen to him as a kid, but that was like, you know, one night that sucked. This is just the kid's whole childhood, just garbage. And I, yeah. I, I, I honestly feel really, really bad for this kid. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, when sitting and watching this for the podcast, taking notes and stuff, it, it gained another like level of respect for what this movie's trying to do and, and the depths it's going to, you know, really analyze <laughs> what could push somebody to this and like their upbringing mm-hmm. and stuff rather than just, you know, some crappy family upbringing. It's, you know, tackling, you know, going against the, you know, Catholic conservative, you know, mindset mm-hmm. of the era and just, traumas and you know mental disorders and you know just right a whole lot of things different things like like mm-hmm. any other horror movie like uh, the setup would have ended just with that that santa scene at the very beginning and that, it would have gone from that to him working at the toy store and that would have been it and that would have been okay but that extra time in the orphanage and just the the stuff within the toy store as well just really sets it up really well oh well, i mean most of them would have had that opening scene and then gone like you know, 15 years later, and then he's a mental patient that escapes, or is sure right. shows up, and then this one actually just yeah. focuses on him more as like going being a human being. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you're seeing his moment of like, that he came through it first, mm-hmm. yeah. and 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 that's rare because usually what one of the unfortunate things about film, I think in general, to be honest with you, a few exceptions aside, is that mental illness is very black and white, and so if someone has an experience that can impact them, it just it completely hammers them for the rest of their lives and they can't shake it. They can't let go and they can't move on. I love that about this one of all genres for, for this to occur in in this film for this guy to have made his way through the wormhole to, to come out of something that in that most characters are not allowed to in film and to be a success here he is on his way he's got his first job now like he's finally stepping out into the world and then when he's in this new terrain of course you're going to be more vulnerable and you know the monkey wrench gets thrown into it and then things start to go south but definite definite respect for them approaching this from a more mature aspect and much more mature than most horror films do we get to christmas eve and Mr. Sims, the the manager's told, uh, well, Santa broke his ankle, so to replace him, of course, Billy, right? <laughs> Why not? Yes. Why not? Yeah. He's being very creepy with the children, which the parents think is great. There's like uh, mom who says, like, he sure knows how to handle the kids. And they're like, yeah, right, and leaving did. him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, as soon as they leave Santa, they run up to their parent and, like, they grab their leg and are clearly terrified. Right. Andy in the back gets a call from Sister Margaret checking up on Billy, and he tells him he's playing Santa, to which she's like, wow, wow. Yes. <laughs> she hangs the phone. Like, I, you can tell immediately, she's like, I have to get there. Because she's the only one who understands. Like, yes. she's the only one this entire film who has any, who has paid attention to this poor kid at all. That, <laughs> it's that, like that he was invisible to everyone else. Like, like, like the next nicest person to him is Mr. Sims. Like and everyone else is crap yeah. to this guy. Mr. Sims, Mr. Sims just... the drunk. Yeah. <laughs> who? Yeah. Yes. Who locks up the doors at seven and says, Seven o'clock. It's over. Time to get shit faced. <laughs> Which I love that sequence, by the way. As oh, yeah. someone who worked in retail for a long time. 
that that is that is a genuine moment when you shut the doors for the for like the final time on Christmas Eve. Oh yeah. You, and you know that the that the storm is finally over. Then that's it. That actually is a moment for celebration. I like that. Billy has some drinks with the coworkers and the girl Pamela. They likes and Andy go to sneak in the back to you know what we think is hooking up, and drunk Mr. Sims uh, tells him he has a long evening ahead of him. Better go, better get started and go get him, because he's Santa. <laughs> I love, you know, you remember what Santa does on Christmas Eve. One thing I like about Drunk <laughs> Mr. Sims, him and the uh, like assistant manager, who had, I can't remember her name, but they start singing one of the songs made for this movie, which helps to the belief that you've heard these songs, or you should know these songs. They're like, oh, it's Christmas songs, but they're singing the Santa's watching, Santa's. They're singing that <laughs> song to each other, and I'm like, okay, that's kind of clever. So they have these Christmas songs what? written before they shot the movie. It was just great, because you're avoiding licensing, and you're also, you're it's a, a soundtrack specific to the film. So those songs are only in this movie, and I think that's pretty great, too. I'd like to have a Christmas party and play that in the background, and be like, oh, what is this? Oh, Silent Night, Deadly Night <laughs> soundtrack? Gout. <laughs> well, they're great because they they sound, I mean, they sound like Christmas songs, but they're also... Uh, they're easy to remember, mm-hmm. and they're, they're very singable. They're perfect. Catchy. So Billy follows Andy and Pamela to the stockroom, and she's been duped into thinking he's got a present for her in the stockroom, and Billy witnesses him getting forceful and trying to rape her. So, of course, we get to see his mom get forcefully killed again, and Billy's face then shows like a full transformation into this killer he becomes, and he yells naughty, and then chokes yeah. and hangs Andy by the Christmas lights, like one-handed noose of Christmas lights, choking him to death. Well, this is yeah. the first time he's been able to tap into his rage, so it's all just pent up right. in him. Pamela, like, has doesn't thank him, she calls him crazy and slaps him, and then he says, punishment is necessary, Pamela. It is Good. And then guts her with a box cutter, <laughs> which I watched the uncut version of this. Did you guys watch the uncut? Yeah. Version? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. When I watched the um, uncut version, I thought, God, what was this like before? Because it, it must have just been Swiss cheese. You know, I mean, I could tell like where the restored footage was, obviously. Yeah, there's, a di- there's a difference in quality because of the different sources, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's not quite the drastic change that like My Bloody Valentine had when you're like, oh, wow, there was gore in this movie. Yeah. Right. There's gore in the movie, but it's not like over the top. It's like, all right, that makes sense for this. Yeah. Like Death Spa mm-hmm. is gorier than this movie. Yeah. But these murders make sense, unlike Death Spa. Yeah. Mr. Sims goes to the back to check what the ruckus is, and then poor Mr. Sims gets beaten with a hammer, and uh, that leaves Mrs. Randall alone, and she's calling for Mr. Sims, and she checks the stockroom to find Mr. Sims with the club of the hammer stuck in his head, and she tries to escape. Doors are locked, and while phoning for help, Billy shows up with an axe and hits it on the counter, cutting the phone cord, and she runs... And he starts reciting the night before Christmas as he's, like, going through the aisles to stalk her, which is pretty creepy and cool. Well, he's lost his mind, so he needs to do something creepy, you know, to make her even more scared, I guess. She gives him the best she's got by knocking him over and stealing his axe to go chop the door, but um, their store stocks bows and arrows and shoots her right through the heart. Billy unlocks the door, heads out, and then too late, Sister Margaret shows up to find the bodies. You know, it's funny. There are parent groups that said, oh, no, we can't show this movie to children, which they wouldn't go see to begin with. However, we will sell weapons 
like bows and arrows <laughs> to children. Yeah. We have a group of carolers singing a made-up song outside, and we, we now shift focus to a couple in a house. Uh, Denise and some, this guy. Denise is Linnea Quigley. This is one of her first bigger notable horror roles, although this comes mm-hmm. after Savage Streets for her, I believe. And as they're getting it on on the pool table, a little girl interrupts as she wants to see Santa Claus, which I don't know if... Is Linnea supposed to be her older sister or her mom? I think it's supposed to be either her sister or it's supposed to be a, just a babysitter. a babysitter. But as a side note, do you know who the guy is? He looks who, familiar. He's Barry Sims in Halloween oh, 6. Wow. The sort of the, the sort of yeah. Howard Stern-ish kind of guy. That's the same guy. Barry kicks Wow. Ass. Yeah. Wow, okay. That, that's where... Okay, I was like, he looks familiar. And then I was going through the profile he didn't have a picture with his imdb profile so i'm like okay oh he didn't do anything else so i didn't i didn't go click on him but that's yeah that's awesome mm-hmm. did, did they know that he was in this movie when they cast him in halloween six or just no not that i'm aware of okay. uh-uh. i'm sure the producers of that movie knew very little about anything <laughs> <laughs> it's time to make another well, i mean, I mean Farron's, <laughs> Farron's was a big fan so i didn't know if he possible he was involved with that or would have known. Uh, well not with casting no he, he wasn't yeah she tells her if, if uh, you don't go back to bed Santa won't come he's not the only one two ball in the corner pocket mm-hmm. Ew. Ew. <laughs> and uh, as they get back to getting busy there's a jinkling herd from outside and Denise says she needs to let the cat in but only puts on shorts to go upstairs and let the yes. cat in well, it's winter. She's got to be warm. Yes. <laughs> well, which, which later on, the guy will put on a shirt when he goes upstairs. <laughs> well, it's winter. He's got to be warm. <laughs> well, I love her, her shorts that are the shortest denim shorts I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I'm not even sure that qualifies as denim. When there's that little, yeah. I'm, that's just kind of like a pocket with a hole in it. Right. <laughs> she just likes to wear shorts inside in the, uh, in the winter. Um she, she just needs the pockets to hold the condoms. That's all she needs. That's right. That's so, right. There's no cat out there. Right. But, but finally Classic. shows up, and uh, Billy's right behind her yelling, punish, and he tosses an axe at her. Like misses. Billy's do. Yes, like Billy's do. <laughs> As they're prone to do. Uh, but in an iconic moment, he impales her on deer antlers on the wall, which is gruesome and cool. That's awesome. Like I, I've never seen that in any other movie. And that's another thing that's pretty awesome about this movie. There are some really unique uh, kills with it. That's one. I think that's probably the most unique in the movie. But it's yeah, I think it's worth noting. Definitely. There is even a Christmas ornament made of that moment a couple years ago. Ooh, ooh, dark. Uh, yeah. I'll call him Barry Sims. He's uh, playing pool downstairs. Didn't hear any of this. And I want to point out that there's a sweet tiger painting on the wall down there. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a match there's one to go with it upstairs as well. <laughs> um, they're, they're they're lovers of tigers. Maybe this is um they're related to Siegfried and Roy or something. Maybe they just get these tiger pictures. That's who they're babysitting for. That's uh. Mm, okay, sure. Uh, um, but, they have a home in Iowa. Sure. Right. Or Utah. Where are we? It's irrelevant. Whatever. Billy attacks the guy upstairs and um. The guy knocks him with a fire poker and then decides he has enough time to phone the police. But Billy chucks him out a window, and in a cool moment, he gets impaled with glass, big chunks of glass, one in the abdomen and one in the face, just by going thrown out a window. You don't see that often. Yeah, that's Argento stuff. 
Yeah, that's, yeah, that's oh, yeah, very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also want to point out that during the fight between um, the uh, the young guy and, and Billy, more ball trauma because he kicks him. He kicks him in the crotch oh, before he gets yeah. thrown out. So there's no there's no dick punch, Justin. You don't know this, but oh, yes. <laughs> we we've had a real run where there's been dick punches in the movies that we've or watched. Like, oh, good. Yeah. Yes. Crotch trauma has been a, a so, constant. Yes. The the uh, my my preferred uh a crotch trauma is is a dick punch, but I'll take a a, a ball shot is okay, but. <laughs> You know, th- this That'll will hold do. us That's over. That's the backup goalie. The backup yeah, goalie is the right. ball shot. Exactly. This will hold us over until the next one. Right. So we, as long as we keep our streak of crotch destruction alive, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, the little girl comes out and sees Billy, and he turns around to come greet her, and he asks if she's been good or naughty, and she says good, and he's like, and he's trying to, and she hasn't done anything naughty, and he's trying to make sure of it, and then he decides, you know. Here's my box cutter, a.k.a. a murder weapon, and leaves. Covered in blood. Santa's his gift. So the cops are out looking for Billy, and they end up stopping in a house where they see Santa climbing in a window, and they just barge in and pull their guns, but a little girl says, Daddy, and they realize they're at the wrong house. And by the way, another Halloween connection, Santa climbing through the window is Don Shanks, who played Michael in Part 5. Ah, fantastic. I think it's... um, (laughs) <laughs> that's like the uh, this whole movie is great that's like the one scene where it's like well that didn't need to be in it it doesn't hurt it or anything <laughs> like that but well, we've, been pretty, we've been pretty dark for a while it you know lightens up the mood a little bit i guess uh, thankfully they didn't shoot him that would have been way too dark <laughs> it, it begins to show the incompetence of the police force there yeah yes. they're, they're kind of a minor character anyway i mean they, they don't really play that much of a role i think the, the purpose was to show that they exist and that they're doing something because there would be an apb out on a dude dressed as santa murdering people and yeah. so they had to do something to show that i, I don't know why they yeah sister mark why that dad didn't just go home after she found the body yeah so, yeah he's murdered yeah. seven people by this point in the movie the police should be on the case <laughs> right yeah. we then catch up with some young guys sledding and they ended up getting you know, picked on, bullied by two older guys who take their sleds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those those five dollar sleds. What a couple of dickheads. Get yeah. the- and these bullies who were like in their like late fifties right. <laughs> who who were who were fucking with like twelve year olds. Right. But like, you know, you guys you know what sucks about you? You got sleds. Yeah. <laughs> we 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 what why? Why what's the why? But yeah, what's your they, axe are, to grind? Are they heroes? They yeah. save, they save those kids' lives. You know, yeah. They go yeah, down that, true. You know, go downhill, and one of them gets their head chopped off. You should make one of those. You should make a conspiracy documentary about this film that ties all this stuff in to this idea that the whole thing is orchestrated from the orphanage. From Mother Superior. Mother Superior. Yeah. We move to Christmas Day, where Sister Margaret's asleep at the police station. And a detective wakes up to say, you know, report three more murders. And she claims everything he's doing has a logic to it. So the detective feels that they can truly predict the next move, which she says, it's the orphanage, which, wow, pretty smart. Everyone there is opening presents. And Mother Superior is now in a wheelchair bound. And yeah, when I saw her, yeah, I know when I saw her, I thought she's still alive. 
Why, <laughs> Billy, you failed this city. She's crafting her next apprentice, uh, little Ricky. He's on his way. Like, he's making his way to her. It just took him a while to get there. And just because to make things difficult, they have to show this scene with this little girl playing make-believe on the phone and leaving it off the hook. So, of course, the detective's on the other line getting a busy signal. And and then Margaret, Sister Margaret, has to, you know, cover it even more by saying, oh, we only have one line there. So they got to drive out to the orphanage. Well, that makes yeah. sense because, like I said, I'm sure Mother Superior is uh, cheap, so she's not going to pay for an, another phone. And two, it's not like anyone's going to call there because it's not like Mother Superior has any friends because who would want to be around her? Yeah. I, I bet she's the only one that has access to the phone because she's such a huge piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's often the police officers are ordered to shoot to kill if necessary, and one drives around and kids are playing outside, and, and of course a guy in a Santa outfit approaches, and a cop pulls up and sees him, and he gets out and shoots the guy dead, and it's it's not Billy, it's Father O'Brien, and there. <laughs> but to be fair, he was probably going in to hit the children, well, because because yeah. Mother Superior, she's tired, she's in a wheelchair, she can't do it anymore. So she needs someone else to do it. The funny thing is, they're like, oh, he was deaf. He couldn't hear anything. (laughs) (laughs) Nice conceit. Nice conceit. Yeah. This would be great. It's like, what the hell? Why does my back hurt? So, of course, Mother Superior isn't too happy that Father O'Brien was shot, and they have to stick around with the cop who shot him. and, And she says to the cop, all you've done is harm, which she should have said, all you've done is cause everything to happen today. Yeah, no kidding. Like, the psychiatrist existed at this time. Why did no one try to reach out to Billy? The cop goes to check out the grounds, and we, we do then find Ricky still there at the orphanage, and Mother Superior points out that he's so much better than his brother. So we go to the officer walking around the grounds. He finds some shack with a loose door. He goes downstairs. There's nothing there, but when he goes up the stairs, Billy's there with the axe. Punish! Then Billy shows up to the door, and a little girl lets him in. And he keeps the axe behind him so the kids can't see it. And he heads towards Mother Superior. And she tells the kids to keep back. And tells the kids that there is no Santa Claus. And Billy says, you know, naughty. Pulls the axe out to get Mm -hmm. Mother Superior. And we're all ready to applause. But then, no, he gets shot down by the detective. And he falls right down. And he can't chop Mother Superior in half. And Sister Margaret comes to Billy's side. And he says to the kids... You're safe now. Santa Claus is gone. Which is really kind of a haunting moment, the way they score it. <laughs> yes. And the way he sees yeah. it. It's just, I love that, that synthy p- weird piano thing they've got going on in the score at that time. It's just... It's yeah. Fucking, creepy but uh we pan up from billy's body to ricky who scowls at mother superior and says naughty yep setting it up because in that moment he's like one day i want to say garbage day yep one day i want to open an umbrella through someone and i want to lead the way for a bill mosley to wear a skull bowl that's all that's all (laughs) i want and someday I hope someone makes a, a a robot that's also like a doll and kills and kills, you know, just hopefully yeah. someday. <laughs> but I'm not all in because I'm going to let 45 minutes of it be this this movie. Uh, again. 
Yeah, which I kind of like that. I got to say, I over time I found myself liking and watching part two a lot more. I for the longest time I just resented it. It's almost like a greatest hits of part one mixed with new material. Yeah, it's 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 the greatest hits of part one plus one of the like best like midnight crazy you know you know Mm -hmm. with your friends and crack jokes at a movie. Uh, sure films so it's yep. i mean I, I i do respect part two i i enjoy it more than like three's got some really cool artistic ideas but man it's a slug oh yeah and that one had like a lot of twin peaks connections to it too it was really weird a lot of people who starred on twin peaks and i think the director was good friends with david lynch or something like that. i'm just waiting for the uh silent night daily night movie that goes into space fingers crossed man well, there's about five of these made, is that right? Five plus uh, just the Silent Night, which... Well, then I think we're overdue. <laughs> yeah, it's time. It's time for space. I think Blumhouse should just pick up every franchise and just do a, an entry in space for all of them. It should be like, oh, what was I, it? like? Hey, um, I, like... I, rec- I had to review Ice Age Collision Course. It was the fifth one of those. It went to space. Yeah. <sighs> Nice. Wasn't th- wasn't there like some kind of like um like Yogi space race or it's something like that where it's all the Hanna Barbera characters in a space race? So that's what they should do. Sure. They should have all these murderers in one movie and racing. They're just <laughs> racing. They're racing <laughs> to murder someone. Cannonball run in space <laughs> with slasher villains. Oh yes. Sounds I like hope that robot chicken sketch. <laughs> Stop drilling, you hit oil. Punish! Now we move on to the point of the show where we rank our film today. Our options, as we are called some cavalcade, we like to keep them culty. So, our options are stay with our family. You are cool with just, you know, never leaving the orphanage, staying there with Mother Superior. Converted, which means uh, you buy into the teachings of Mother Superior and drink the Kool-Aid. You want to be her next apprentice. So, Justin Beam, how do you rank Silent Night, Deadly Night? Drinking the Kool-Aid, essential. Cullen? This movie, uh, I did not know what to expect. All I have known of the movies is, is the second one. So, I had seen a lot of this movie without realizing it. But I think it was really entertaining. I think that it it, kind of sucks that all the others went in such a different way from this because this really could have been like uh, like Halloween. Honestly, Um, I would have loved to see just more uh, of these movies like this one. Um, I think it would have been awesome that my only complaint with the movie is that Mother Superior lives. If she would have just been brutally brutally murdered in the most horrific fashion to the point where you were afraid to look at the screen because of the nightmares that would be embedded in your eyelids i would have been fine with it because she'd be dead (laughs) so i say i drink the kool-aid on this one what's what stinks is they kill they do kill mother superior in the next one but it's not the same actress oh yeah yeah um, I, I I would be very happy if Billy somehow actually survived and was still able to kill or or whatever, but um, but it didn't happen. Whatever. Uh, Brandon, how do you rate Silent Night, Deadly Night? Uh, I'm gonna. It's it's weird. I've kind of had this weird relationship with this movie, where when I first watched it as a kid, it really affected me. It was like it was pretty dark compared to a lot of the slashers you know I watched, and I was really sh- the first time I watched it, I was shocked that Billy was the killer. I I thought it was leading up 
to you know everyone telling him oh it, it, you'll be fine you'll be fine and then another santa like attacking things maybe like a, a sort of in the like friday the 13th part 5 mold where mm-hmm. you know, the tommy jarvis is haunted by jason's past and only for stuff to happen to him again i thought that's where it was kind of going when i first watched it as a kid and it was just it, it just like had this weird sexual stuff and it was just you know this dark story you know, the parents getting murdered is like absolutely horrific but then like I don't know somewhere else along the line I watched it again I was kind of kind of bored with it and then I watched it picked it up again later in life and I liked it but it was back and forth but this time I really found a like deeper appreciation for a lot of the psychology they were going through with it and you know just overall just solid slasher it's only 89 minutes it doesn't overwhelcome its stay it's got a really interesting angle that I'd say most of them don't take it's not as quote unquote fun as some of the slashers can be but it's it's dark it's sinister and it can work in a disturbing manner if it's not even if it's not like jump scaring you or having you on the edge of your seat so yeah i definitely definitely recommend silent night deadly night i mean it's it's not it's not scary i mean i wasn't scared certainly but i don't i just enjoyed the hell out of it honestly and next week on a bonus Halloween episode of Cult Cinema Cal- Cavalcade. Yes, next week we're not, like I said, up above uh, something special, but we're going to come back next week for you instead of waiting two weeks. We'll be joined by comic book writer and author Troy Brownfield to discuss the WNUF Halloween special. Many of you maybe never heard of it, but you can check it out on Amazon uh, for a rental for $3.99 if you're wanting to watch it before listening to the episode, or you can get it on DVD or however way whatever method you'd like to watch it by but yeah that's next week so we'll be back next week so that means you're actually getting like three episodes in a row because we'll be back the week after that you lucky people (laughs) i want to thank everyone who listened in and thank especially justin for coming on i really appreciate it glad we can it's been a blast Um, great discussion yeah thanks for giving me a call yeah do you want to tell people where you can find your content at the easiest way is through probably social media just my name, which is Justin. My last name is B-E-A-H-M. And then the podcast is at justinbeamradiohour.com. And then my site is just myname.com. So it's just my name on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that. So it's pretty easy to find me. Thank you again. Uh, This episode has come to an end. We look forward to next time. But first, stay tuned for the trailer for the WNUF Halloween special. The trailer that actually trails. Don't check your dial, folks. You didn't tune into Transylvania's public access station. No, sir. Tonight is Halloween. Halloween is Satan's night. The night of the devil. Reporter Frank Stewart has a special Halloween treat in store for viewers tonight. He'll be leading a group of paranormal experts to the infamous Weber House. Do you know what happened here in the Weber House? Some people got killed. Their son went haywire. Frank Stewart and his team of experts will conduct the first ever live on TV seance. Evil works in mysterious ways, Frank. It's unpredictable. Are there any spirits in the house? It's scary. That's that's far out. There's bad aura. Something strange going on in this house. Animal mutilation. Paranormal disturbances. Devil worship. Wait, whoa, hold on. This is not stage. Hello? Is this the work of the devil? Folks, we are going where no camera crew has gone before. Father, perform the exorcism. This is not some Halloween prank. The grisly evidence of the supernatural is real. We'll be right back.
You're watching the WNUF Halloween Special. to Cult Cinema Cavalcade. You can find more of Cullen's work on the Creative Zombie Studios Network and on Twitter at my name is Cullen. You can find more of Brandon's work at whysoblue.com and on Twitter at BT Peters. Podcast produced by Brad Shoemaker. Edited by Brandon. Narration by Becky. Theme song Pink Baby by Happy Elf found on the freemusicarchive.org network. The movie in today's discussion is property of its respective studio and no infringement is intended. Please remember to leave us an iTunes rating and review. Join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade. Every night Everybody will